As Indian and Chinese troops mark their third year in a standoff at the line of actual control in Ladakh, is China's belligerence on Arunachal, the G20, and journalist visas a cause for alarm? We will be joined by the Hindu's Beijing correspondent, Anand Krishnan, ahead on the show. Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sahasini Heather. Now, on the face of it, the situation at the line of actual control seems frozen. Not a lot happening there. But ties between India and China appear to worsen by the day. And we're talking strategically, of course, because in terms of trade, as we've said before, ties have been thriving. But the past few weeks saw a number of headlines in the strategic sphere. So we're going to break those down for you, tell you what happened, possibly in reverse order. To begin with, uh, there was the Arunachal visit by the Home Minister. And this week, China issued a strong objection received a strong rebuttal from India after the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs criticized the visit to Arunachal Pradesh by Home Minister Amit Shah. Uh, Mr. Shah actually made a real point. He visited the easternmost village of Kibitu, where he announced the government's program for border villages called the Vibrant Villages Program, uh, saying that a prosperous border village is a secure border village. Now, while India has always been in control of Arunachal Pradesh, it's a part of its territory, China has actually claimed the entire state is part of Tibet. Tibet it calls Shizang, and more specifically, it says South Tibet, or Zangnan, is, um, uh, is what it calls Arunachal. And the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said it's Chinese territory, and any officials' activities in the area are not conducive to peace and tranquility, are against China's sovereignty in the border regions. And the government of China firmly opposes it. In reply, here's what the Ministry of External Affairs said that Indian leaders routinely travel to the state of Arunachal Pradesh as they do to any other state of India. The spokesperson went on to say that Arunachal Pradesh was, is and always will remain an integral and inalienable part of India. Objecting to such a visit does not stand to reason, he said, and will not change the above reality. So that was not all. Arunachal's renaming also became uh, another issue. The Home Minister's visit actually came a week after a different verbal spat had been held over Arunachal Pradesh after the Chinese government announced a plan to rename, it's called it renaming, 11 places in the state, including one right next to the capital, Itanagar. So you can see how much into Arunachal territory China published a map, a list of those places in Mandarin, in Tibetan, and in Pinyin, which is the English translation. Now, clearly, this is an offensive act by Beijing and not the first. In 2017, Beijing renamed five places. In 2021, it renamed 15. So India's reaction was sharp, saying Arunachal Pradesh is an integral part of India again, and China's attempts of using such what it called invented names cannot change the ground reality. Now, the Hindu's uh, Beijing correspondent, Anand Krishnan, is in India at present. We'll tell you why in just a bit. Um, but I did catch up with him and began by asking him, how seriously should the Chinese belligerence, particularly in these cases in Arunachal, be taken? And could the situation now escalate? Listen in. Well, Swasni, this belligerence, as you put it, in some ways is posturing by both sides, playing to the gallery. Uh, it doesn't really affect the on-the-ground situation on the boundary uh, this war of words. But I think what we should pay attention to is this provocative issuing of names by China, uh, which is the third time it's happened, actually. And each time has coincided with the downturn in relations. So obviously, there is some political signaling going on. But what is different this time is that the entire relationship is in a huge strain that we haven't seen in decades because of the LAC crisis. 
uh, triggered by the Chinese transgressions in April 2020. And also with uh, their reaction to uh, Home Minister Amit Shah's visit, uh, it's interesting that sometimes they don't react, but when relations are strained, they do react. Uh, and I think that on the long run, this doesn't bode very well for managing the boundary, peace on the boundary, uh, where we've seen tensions in the Western sector in Ladakh, uh, but not yet on a, on a similar scale in the Eastern sector in Arunachal. But by putting out these names, one thing we should note, Swasni, is they are signaling to the Chinese public, Beijing is signaling that uh, their claims on the Eastern sector in Arunachal are not negotiable. And I think that doesn't bode well, well at all. Uh, for the future of uh, resolving the boundary, though, of course, those talks themselves have been derailed by the LAC crisis. So a situation worth watching. We're going to go back to Anand Krishnan, but I want to tell you that he has written at the Hindu's website about what the renaming controversy was all about. Uh, and you can see that at the link given below. Then there was another event, the Bhutan King's visit to India. Now, speculation uh, of a deal between China and Bhutan over Doklam has been growing. Doklam, of course, is an area disputed between the two countries and one of the areas under discussion in boundary talks. Uh, so I'm going to pull up a map for you. And if you can see over there, the areas under discussion uh, between the two countries are Doklam to the west of Bhutan and then those two valleys in the north, Jamperlung and Sakhalung, which is in the northern area. So a much larger area in the north and then Doklam. Uh, to the west. Now, head of Bhutan King Jigni Kesar Namgyal Wanchuk's visit to India, an interview by Dr. Uh, Lote Shering, the Prime Minister of Bhutan, suggested there had been considerable progress in talks with China. Now, if this were to go through, and that's a very big if, uh, because Bhutan has resisted the deal with China for decades, it is a matter of concern for India. Why? Uh, because the Doklam area, which comes close to the Tri-Junction, and the Dolam area, what India calls Dokola, uh, is actually area that abuts India's Siliguri corridor. This is inside Indian territory. And what is called Chicken's Neck, because it connects the rest of India to the Northeast. So India will definitely object to any heightened Chinese presence and what it sees as a vulnerable spot. So here's what Foreign Secretary Vinay Quatra actually said when asked about the possibility of a deal during... Uh, he was speaking during the uh, Bhutanese king's visit to India. That government of India very closely follows all developments which have a bearing on our national interest and we would take all necessary measures to safeguard them as necessary. Now, as regards the recent statements and the related commentary to them is concerned, I would say one that India and Bhutan remain in close touch relating to our sh shared uh, interest, including security interest. And uh, I would only reiterate, you know, our earlier statements on this issue, which very explicitly and very clearly uh, bring out our position on the determination of the tri-junction boundary points. Okay, and another issue between the two countries was over the G20. In the face of opposition from China and from Pakistan, and of course Pakistan is not a G20 member, India has decided to hold G20 meetings in three places that China sees as disputed territory. So one of them was on March 23rd in Itanagar in Arunachal, a G20 engagement group on innovation met. Um, April 26th in Leh, the G20 engagement group on youth is due to meet. And May 22nd in Srinagar, the G20 working group on tourism 
is scheduled to meet. China has already skipped one of those meetings, expected to skip the other two, to boycott the other two. And remember earlier in March, and we discussed it here on Worldview, China also joined Russia in openly opposing India's draft communique, uh, which meant that the government failed to issue a joint statement in two meetings. So all eyes are now on whether China will be helpful or how it will behave ahead of the G20 summit in September when it comes to forging a joint communique. Then there's the issue of the journalist visas. Uh, and this week, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the MEA exchanged accusations on the treatment of their journalists in each other's countries. China said it is moving to take what is called what it called countermeasures against Indian journalists in response for Indian actions against Chinese journalists, including freezing the visas uh, of a journalist like Anand Krishnan, in fact. Uh, so I did ask him what would happen if journalist visas came under more pressure. Could we see a scenario where there are no journalists at all covering the India-China relationship in each other's countries, in De Delhi and Beijing? Or is there some sort of solution to this? Uh, no, Suhasini, I actually think that as you put it, I think it is a real possibility that soon there will be a situation where there are no Indian journalists on the ground in China, no Chinese journalists on the ground in India. And I don't think that's a situation that anyone would like to see. Uh, of course, on April 4th, both myself as well as Anshuman Mishra, the Prasar Bharati correspondent in Beijing, uh, both of us happened to be out of the country for short personal visits after two years of closed borders and zero COVID. And it's kind of cynically, unfortunately, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry used uh, us being out of the country and froze our visas. And of course, this was retaliation for uh, what we should say are long-standing Chinese grievances of how India has been treating their journalists going back several years. In fact, they've been raising it a number of times, warning of repercussions if India didn't restore 12-month visas for Chinese journalists who were put on three-month visas by the Ministry of Home Affairs in India. Uh, and on March 31st this year, a Xinhua journalist who had to leave India uh, seemed to be the trigger for these uh, for the Chinese retaliatory moves, uh, both on myself and on Anshuman. Uh, and I think in the long run, it doesn't bode very well for how the two countries are going to be reporting on the other. In the absence of on-the-ground coverage, you're going to have uh, social media, fake news and disinformation uh, be the dominant trend that you see. And that's, that's something that isn't really going to help, I think, the broader relationship as well. So journalists, in a sense, becoming collateral damage to the, uh, the heightened tensions between India and China. And finally, all of these tensions are, of course, if you go right back, in the backdrop of the past three years of a standoff uh, at the line of actual control. What we've seen in these three years is the amassing of nearly 100,000 troops on both sides of the line of actual control. This began after Chinese transgressions at Ladakh, Sikkim, and Arunachal Pradesh. We've seen violent skirmishes for the first time in 45 years, deaths in Galwan, uh, skirmishes in Sikkim and in Yangtze, where uh, PLA forces attempted to overrun an Indian post uh, last December. We've also seen, as a result of that, no talks at the highest levels. Apart from one short encounter between Prime Minister Modi and President Xi Jinping at the Indonesia G20, uh, ministerial-level meetings have really... There have been many ministerial-level meetings, but all, by and large, focusing on the boundary situation. 17 rounds of core commander talks have been held to resolve the standoff. Uh, they, in fact, both sides held their 26th, what is called, WMCC meeting, which includes diplomats and military and border... Uh, security officials. They held that in Beijing in February. They have so far achieved 
disengagement at four out of six points, leaving uh, Depsang and Demchok so far. So my question to Anant was really about three years since the LAC standoff began. Is there any kind of resolution in sight? Well, it has been three years since the LAC crisis began. And I think that contrary to what many expected, there actually has been some progress towards disengagement. Uh, they have disengaged and created buffer zones in four out of the six friction areas, which is Galwan Valley, uh, north and south of uh, Pangong Lake and in Gogra Hot Springs as well. And the two pending areas, of course, in Demchok and Depsang are taking a long time for resolution. Uh, and I don't think, I think both sides do expect eventually for there to be some agreement uh, similar to what we've seen in the four other areas. But what is more difficult for both sides is even if there is disengagement, the fact is there's now a permanent deployment of thousands of troops of both sides on forward areas. And the idea of de-escalation is something that seems so far off. So essentially what you're looking at is a, is a live LAC, uh, an LAC that's fundamentally changed uh, from what we've seen arguably from the late 1980s to 2020, which is a significant period in the relationship. And I think uh, in my view, there's no going back to that. The whole management of the LAC is now changed because you're going to have more frequent run-ins. Uh, and it's going to be a source of instability in the relationship going forward. Uh, and the boundary returning to the center of the relationship, I think also is going to mark a more confrontational relationship uh, between India and China going forward. I think there's no shying away from that. But the immediate task is to come up with new arrangements to ensure that you don't have incidents as we saw in 2020, you don't have violence on the LAC. And the fact that both sides now need a new mechanism to deal with this new normal on the LAC where you have a large number of troops and more infrastructure in close proximity. And I think that's a challenge that both sides are going to have to deal with uh, going forward. So an important takeover there from Anand. Even if there was complete disengagement today, de-escalation and normalcy seem virtually impossible at present given the new normal at the LAC, the buffer zones, and the denial of patrolling areas to Indian forces. Of course, Anand Krishnan's book, India's China Challenge, is a must-read. He wrote it very, very uh, perceptively in, uh, before the standoff began. But most importantly comes the question, why did all of this start in the first place? Is there any indication of what could have been the reason for China to amass its troops along the LAC or the transgressions? Remember, they came just six months after Prime Minister Modi met President Xi Jinping, hosted him in Mamalapuram. Uh, and there are several theories, but remember, even External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar has actually said, we still don't know why China did what it did. So what are those theories? The first, of course, is the most obvious one of general hegemony. China has made it clear that it intends to take back every inch of territory that it believes it owns, uh, from the South China Sea to the line of actual control in other areas. There's a three-pronged modus operandi, if you like. It publishes maps, it renames places and claims them, uh, and it tries to settle populations in disputed territories and boundary areas. And, and we have seen China do this very much with India, but also with some of its other neighbors, maritime neighbors particularly. The second theory that it wants to stop infrastructure building, because after all, for the past decade, India has really ramped up its construction of infrastructure, roads, bridges, airstrips, closer and closer to the line of actual control, which is something China may have been trying to stall with its actions, given that China has always considered it has an advantage at the LAC because it can get to the LAC quicker uh, and uh, closer to, uh, uh, to India's 
infrastructure. And now that is about to be appended. China is also hoping, and this is the third theory, uh, that its infrastructure is part of the Belt and Road Initiative and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor to, uh, to Pakistan, if you like, between China and Pakistan, could in some way be impinged or threatened by India's uh, uh, border situation or by the new construction that we're talking about, particularly in areas like where China wants to build the Karakoram 2 highway or the Aksai Chin Railway. Uh, so it might have been trying to stop Indian troops from having access and cut off India's access uh, to being any kind of a spoiler in that situation. And the fourth theory not so much spoken about is that China may have been responding to India's moves of 2019 and not so much the August 5th uh, decision to reorganize Jammu and Kashmir, but the changes that were wrought in Ladakh and the publication in November 2019 of new maps for the region and that China's actions uh, could have been triggered. They must have been planned in advance, but they could have been triggered by that timing. Clearly three years into the LAC standoff, it should be clear to Beijing that ties remain frozen and not much is likely to move until the standoff is re resolved. For India, as it watches Chinese moves that much more closely than before and adjusts to the new normal of a fully manned line of actual control, it must also begin a proper study of the reasons for China's actions in 2020, without which it will be impossible to move forward on resolving the situation peacefully. Now we're going to get you some reading recommendations. I've spoken about many of these books before. You will recognize them. Uh, so I'm just going to go with the latest ones so far. One, uh, Understanding the India-China Border, the Enduring Threat of War in the High Himalayas by Manoj Joshi. Uh, then there's China's India War Collision Course on the Roof of the World by Bertel Lindner. Slightly less recent book is called India-China Boundary Issues Quest for Settlement by Ranjit Singh Kala, but it has a lot of very important information in it uh, and the positioning. Uh, another book called Contested Lands, India-China and the Boundary Dispute by Maruf Raza, a journalist. Then there are a few more historical books that I found very interesting to read. India, China and the World, Connected History by Tan Sen Sen, uh, as well as How China Sees India and the World by former Foreign Secretary Sham Sarin. I've spoken about this one before. It takes a view that China has actually historically held a very negative view of India and gives you reasons why. Another book on the same vein is India versus China, Why They Are Not Friends. This is by academic Kanti Bajpai. Then there are some books uh, based really on the archives. And if you like uh, looking at historical documents, these are a dream. The Fractured Himalay, India, Tibet, China from 1949 to 1962, of course, to the war uh, by former Foreign Secretary Nirupama Rao and then Nehru, Tibet and China by Aftar Singh Basin, somebody who always gets together the Ministry of External Affairs' archives and puts them uh, together. Very important works, both of these. We hope you enjoy reading them. We hope you enjoy uh, the show and do join us again here on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.